Hey, what's up, Warrior? It is Jeff from WarriorLife.com, and welcome to podcast episode number 362. And in this week's episode, I will finally reveal that long-awaited truth about handgun stopping power and how to prepare for a real attack. Let's talk tactics. Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. Welcome to the show that helps you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is the Warrior Life Podcast. Hey there, welcome back. This is Jeff Anderson, Executive Director of WarriorLife.com. And yeah, I, I know, I know, I've, I've got to be out of my freaking mind, right? <laughs> I mean, another look at handgun stopping power. Um, is this debate ever ever going to be over? Look, the the numbers keep pouring in and armchair experts like me are going to keep weighing in on this. And it is, is, it is important because people have that question about what caliber gun should they have and what ammunition should they be loading into it. And this debate got really fun starting all the way back in like 1981. Back then, there was a there was this landmark report that was released by the New York City Police Department, and it was a result of of data that they gathered that began in January of 1970, and they studied over 6,000 cases of police combat situations, and they evaluated everything, everything, everything but the kitchen sink related to the dynamics of what it took to stop an attacker with a firearm. They looked at shooting distance statistics, lighting conditions, type of weapon used, um, whether sights were used when shooting, whether the firearm had to be drawn quickly to engage or if it was already drawn, two-hand grip, one-hand grip, stronger support hand grip, reloads, hit percentages, and of course, how many rounds and what type were used to stop an attacker. And ever since then... And there have been entire books, uh, in-depth studies that have been done, articles. They either defend or they dispute the findings of that report. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to go over there. Some have gone on to do their own studies beside that report on firearm stopping power when it comes to handguns. Most notably, my friend Masada Yub has done that. Um, a very popular and debated article written by Greg Illifritz, um, Illifritz who, who did his own 10-year study on firearm stopping power statistics. Uh, Patrick Sweeney of Gun Digest did one. There's been a host of other ex- experts out there who have studied real shootings, both from law enforcement and civilian, ad nauseum, with the hopes of coming up with that ultimate answer of the best caliber and type of ammunition to load into your handgun. And ultimately, everyone just throws their hands up in the air and calls it a myth because statistically, there are just way too many factors that decide whether an attacker is going to stop their attack or whether they're going to continue it. And everybody out there has stories about that attacker who was shot in the head with a 44 Magnum and walked away from the scene of the crime. And there are also those stories out there about the little old lady who shot a home invader in the head with a 22 caliber pistol and he died instantly. So let's face it. I mean, this debate, this debate is never going to end because everyone is looking to load up with the most gaping chest wound inducing ammunition that you can get into your, your trusty master blaster. Everybody wants that one shot man stopper that's going to blow the attacker through the plate glass window or, or throw him halfway across the parking lot. The bottom line is that all we really want is for the threat to ourselves and our loved ones 
to stop their attack as quickly as possible and to have the best round that's going to be able to do that. And I can tell you that I have poured over all the data for literally months on end. I have struggled with this one from, and, and I, I've looked at, I've looked at data from like several different experts in the field. I've compared all that data. Um, mostly, what really, really has helped me the most is the data that's come from what I consider to be the real experts on the effectiveness of ammunition, and that's the ER doctors, the surgeons. And the coroners who see the real-world effects of various rounds on the human body. So I'm going to do you a solid here. I am going to put an end once and for all to the stopping power debate. Yes, yes. Little, little old me is going to do what no other firearms expert in the entire grit-eaten world has ever been able to do, apparently. Um, that's arguable. I know there's guys out there that are saying similar things to me, but I've got a little bit of a different take on think a lot of this stuff. So even those of you that that do have an opinion on stopping power and have done your own research, go ahead and, and give, give what I have to say a try here. Now, I'm going to start off by going against what the other experts out there are saying, that no, handgun stopping power is not a myth. There, I said it. Everybody else is saying it's a myth. I'm here to prove why it's not a myth. But first, we have to build a solid scientific foundation to the solution. Because all the studies and reports that I've seen, they all they all break down to a handful of five no BS realities when it comes to stopping an attacker with a handgun. And here they are. Number one, first and foremost, the reason why most studies determine the handgun stopping power is a myth is because each person is different in how they'll respond to getting shot. About half of the people who get shot just once will stop their attack simply because they don't want to get shot again. But then there are those who don't realize that they've been shot or they're drunk or on drugs or they're having a mental episode or they're just plain pissed off and adrenaline has shut down their pain receptors. And so for these people, your only other alternative is to make them stop physically. And for the purposes of this discussion, we're talking about making them stop physically with your firearm and a bullet, which brings me to number two. From a physical stop perspective, handguns suck, no matter what caliber we're talking about. Six out of seven people who get shot with a handgun live. Now, part of that number supports that most attackers mentally stop themselves so that they can get medical attention. But it also shows that handgun wounds are mostly non-lethal if medical attention is given in time. So one message here is that if you want to stop an attacker quickly use a rifle or a shotgun, which is why both of those are recommended for home defense over a handgun. But rifles and shotguns are generally considered not very cool for concealed carry, according to those pesky laws out there. So the debate rages on for the handgun round with the most stopping power. So let's move on here. Number three, to physically stop a determined attacker, the round has to do physical damage to either the central nervous system, meaning like the brain or the spine, or punch enough holes in major organs to be able to cause enough of a drop in blood pressure that their body simply can't continue. Now, I would also add to that an alternative way, which is a shot that deflates the lungs and causes a lack of oxygen to the brain, and then they physically pass out there also. So an open chest wound or a sucking chest wound is going to is going to deflate that lung it's going to it's going to fill in with blood and it's going to be a big problem for them to be able to breathe in which case they get less oxygen 
and they just pass out. Okay, now this number three here about the physical damage to the central nervous system or physical damage to organs brings up the topic of temporary versus permanent wound uh, uh, cavity. Now, this is something I've personally gone back and forth with over the years. And uh, you may have heard me talk about different, different things when it comes to this, all right? But just for some definition here, the permanent wound cavity is literally the hole that the bullet physically makes as it passes through the body. The temporary wound cavity is the temporary expansion of the interior of the body caused by that hydrostatic shock of the bullet. So think of it like a wave that's caused by the bullet as it makes its way through the body. The biggest wave comes from expanding bullets as they mushroom in the body, creating more mass. So if you look at like gelatin tests and things like that, you'll see that the bullet goes in and then there's this kind of like expansion of that gelatin and in the gelatin, it, it stays permanent like that. Like you can, you can see it made this wave and it stays that way because it's not the gelatinous goo that's inside of your body. In reality, that expansion doesn't stay out that way, which is why it's called a temporary wound cavity. Now that is created by that mushrooming of of an expanding round. So it was originally thought, and even I have professed to this, that the larger the wave that's created by that expanding round, the greater the chance of ripping internal organs as a result. Now this statement has largely been debunked by surgeons and coroners who say that other than the liver, internal organs are much more resilient than that expansion that happens or that hydrostatic shock that handgun rounds deliver, no matter how big or what type of round that they are, and that those organs can withstand that shock without being damaged. Um, I actually have a slightly different viewpoint on this. I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not judging the, the physical characteristics of what they're seeing inside of the body. Um, but I'm going to save this debate for another time. For now, let's just go ahead with the, their evidence and, and say that the most important reality here is that the permanent wound channel is, at the very least, the most important role of that bullet. And therefore, the bigger the hole, the better the chance of hitting something vital. But only if four, come number four here, only if shot placement of that round is in a spot that will shut down the body. So this is the number one most important factor in stopping an attacker, regardless of what caliber we're talking about. Because unless you hit a vital organ or a structure of the body, it doesn't matter what you hit them with. You could hit them with a 9mm in the leg, they're going to survive. You hit them with a 45 in the shoulder, they're going to survive. You hit them with a 22 in the brain box, they could die. So yes, accuracy does count. But getting back to the actual bullet here brings us to number five. The bullet needs to go deep enough to physically hit a vital organ. And the science on this is, is very clear. The deeper the penetration and the larger the hole, assuming a relatively well-placed shot, the better your chances are of hitting a vital organ that's going to stop your attacker. So the general consensus on this is that a round has to go 12 to 18 inches in the gelatin to be considered deep enough to strike organs in the human body. Now that hole can be made deeper and or larger based upon which bullet you choose. So a round nose, non-expanding ball ammunition will penetrate deeper because their lack of expansion doesn't slow them down when they enter the body, they keep on going. 
Expanding bullets, on the other hand, create a larger permanent cavity because they can expand up to 10 times the diameter of their original size. But they don't penetrate as deep as ball ammunition because they're slowed down with that extra mass. And therefore, they may not go deep enough to hit a vital organ. Stress the word may. So uh, from this perspective, um, a lot of people talk about like legendary Jeff Cooper and this would and this would support him because he said they all they all fall the ball. That was one of his his claims to fame there, because those rounds ball ammunition do go deeper than hollow points, and therefore they have a greater chance of hitting those vital organs. So the stats kind of support that, right? Well, more on that in just a minute here because I got a little bit of a different perspective, of course, right? Okay, now. All five of these are very good arguments for why handgun stopping power is a myth. And I will agree that statistically, caliber doesn't matter in physically or mentally stopping these individuals. You can't plan ahead for how you are going to be attacked and by whom. So is it going to be a heavily clothed gangbanger who, who runs at the first sound of a shot fired because he doesn't want to go to the hospital for emergency care, knowing that he's going to be arrested at the end of his visit? Or are you facing a naked homeless guy with a knife who doesn't even realize that he's been shot five times because he's having a mentally a mental breakdown or he's high on drugs or something? So God, in all of his or her <laughs> infinite wisdom or evolution or whatever you believe in, I got to cover all the bases here, um, gives us all a pretty good chance at carrying on our family name. We have a somewhat armored body of skin, muscle, and bone. We have advanced brains to be able to assess danger, avoid it, process information quickly to change plans on a dime, even in the middle of an attack. We have hormones like adrenaline that are going to give us this super strength and, and really fast reflexes to allow us to either escape or to fight back. Um, we even have the ability to be mortally wounded and still carry on the fight. And this was referred back in the Old West days as the dead man's 10 seconds. You can be mortally wounded, that you are going to die, but your brain still has about 10 to 15 seconds of ability left to be able to process information and fight back, even though you are just about to die. Now, the bad news of all this is that your attacker possesses all those traits as well. And so, with all of this, I offer this final, ultimate answer on the stopping power debate. Here it comes, folks. You are the stopping power. Ultimately, you must look at the gun, the ammunition, the caliber, and the shooter as a complete weapon system against your attacker. Now, statistically, you may claim that it doesn't matter because there's only a one or two percentage point difference between defensive caliber wound channels, one-shot stops, hit ratios, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But even that 1% can be the difference between you going home to mama or going to the morgue. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to do everything I can with my gun, with the bullet, with the caliber to gain that 1% advantage. So yes, the gun matters. Yes, the bullet you load matters. But most importantly, you matter. All of these things have to do their part to stop an attacker from trying to avoid the attack to begin with, 
to finishing the attack, particularly if you're engaged with an attacker who isn't going to stop their attack. Whether they don't want to or they don't realize they've been shot and they're going to keep doing it. Now, the good news is that the gun and what you load into it is the easy part. It's you, the shooter, that most likely is going to fail. So what's the stopping power of a 44 Magnum that never leaves your holster? Zero. What bullet's going to stop an attacker if you can't even get to your gun? Zero. What bullet is going to go deep enough if your barrel isn't even pointing at your attacker? None. What bullet is going to stop them if you can't even mentally pull the trigger because you have an aversion to shooting somebody? Zilch. What caliber rounds are going to discharge from your weapon if they're not even in the chamber? None that I know. And what round is going to go off if your weapon is is stuck on safe when you go to pull that trigger? None. Now, all of these realities serve as the baseline for all of my personal defense planning when it comes to carrying my handgun for concealed carry for, for personal defensive purposes. And yours should too. The fact is that most major manufacturer handguns out there are powerful enough and reliable enough to do the job. Don't just choose one because the guy behind the counter says that you should be a 1911 guy like him. Or don't become a Glock fanboy like me just because that's what I carry. I have some very specific features that I look for, but ultimately you are the one who's going to be counting on it when you need it most. So if that's a revolver or an autoloader or a Glock or a Smith & Wesson, get instruction in how to shoot, and then go to the range where you can rent handguns and give as many a spin as you can and find one that really feels right for you. Now, as far as caliber and ammunition go, I know you still want these answers on this, all right? So the bottom line answer is for you to carry the most powerful round that you can be accurate with. If that's a 357 Magnum hand cannon, because you can handle that big of a handgun, go for it. If you're older or have weaker hands and it's only a 22, go for it. Statistically speaking, both are going to do you proud if you have to use them when we're looking at the statistics. For defensive calibers, though, personally, I like 9mm only because I can fit more rounds into the magazine than I can with like a 45. So I have more rounds that are going to give me more chance to hit my target because we know that 80 to 90% of the rounds that most people are going to shoot aren't going to hit the target. So for me, the more rounds I've got, the better. And for me, 9mm has less recoil in it. So for me, I can shoot faster. I can shoot more accurately than I can with a larger handgun. But that's me. You do you. I don't care. All that matters is that you're able to do these other things. So going back to the realization that your round should travel deep enough to hit vital organs, we have to bring back up the ball ammo versus point idea. And, I, and I've, I've thought about this a lot. I've discussed this with a bazillion trainers out there, even the guys that you see in the magazines and on, on, and on TV. And almost unanimously, everybody out there says to use hollow point ammunition to avoid overpenetration and possibly hitting an innocent bystander after the bullet goes through the attacker's body. Now, I will say that FBI research has shown that overpenetration is overblown and that this rarely happens. And even if it did, the bullet would lose so much velocity that it really wouldn't provide much lethal threat to anyone else that's hit with it. But for me, though, there's one statistic from surgeons and coroners that easily ends this debate. 
because of the dynamics of a gunfight, if your round strikes your attacker, its depth and path is dependent upon the angle of entry and whether it hits bone, muscle, and even clothing that can keep a hollow point round from expanding. And in fact, forensics show that 60 to 70% of expanding rounds do not expand in the body. So, essentially, this makes most expanding rounds ball ammunition anyway. But rounds that do expand do create a larger permanent wound cavity, which is what we want. That's a good thing when it comes to physical stopping power. But we also want depth, and that's where ball ammo kind of beats expanding rounds. So the answer then is to choose an expanding round, and then you're covered at both ends. It makes sense, right? Some, most of those rounds are going to go deeper, and some of those rounds are going to create much bigger paths. So you don't know which one of those rounds is actually going to hit your attacker, or which angle it's going to go in, or whether it's going to be stopped from you don't know any of those things so load expanding ammunition because it's going to do all of those things now outside of all of that always remember that you are the ultimate stopping power so put your training into the other areas that you do have control over know when you can legally use your gun for personal defense increase your ability to get to your gun even fight to your gun with that type of training get it pre-staged so that all you have to do is pull the trigger and it's going to go bang and for God's sakes, be, be, become one with your weapon by actually training with it. You're going to rely on your instincts when it all comes down to it. Now, that training doesn't have to be at the live fire range. And in fact, you can get better training at home with safe, effective dry fire training in a more realistic environment. Now, for me, dry fire training is a lot more fun. And I, I have what I call a tactical funhouse that I've created. I have a course on this, and it's we're still giving it away for free in uh, the dry fire masterclass that I do with my friend Ox, where he shows his six-in-one practice training system. It's a dry fire training system that's better than anything else I've ever seen out there. Um, if you want to check that out, you can go check it out. It is free. You can go check it out at praxisclass.com. But no matter what you do, dry or live fire, just be sure to train. Trust me, the enemy is. All right, that about wraps things up here. Now what I need you to do is go ahead and hit me up on our blog over at warriorlifepodcast.com and let me know what you thought of this episode in the comments section there. And hey, a quick shout out here to Dr. Phyllis who did leave a comment and left us one star on our podcast and said, they fell for the pandemic, naive. Oh, Dr. Phyllis, Dr. Phyllis, may the souls of the 12 people who died from the COVID pandemic infest your underwear. All right, so let me go ahead and reword my instructions to you then. If you're loving our podcast, please go on over and give us five shiny stars and help us get the word out there. Five shiny stars. What, you know, just... It's just five stars. But if you're hating our podcast, well, hit me up on our customer support line and let me know how I can improve. I'm, I'm all ears, and I, I think you'll find me quite receptive. Plus, don't forget to check us out on the YouTubes over at youtube.com slash warrior, where we release a new video every week. And be sure to subscribe and hit that little bell while you're there so you don't miss a single episode. And until our next Warrior Life podcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying prepare 
train, and survive. You've been listening to the Warrior Life Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us spread the mission of self-reliance and self-protection when you rate us. And leave us a comment wherever you enjoy these podcasts. And don't forget to check out our posts and videos on our social media channels. You'll see a full directory when you visit our website at www.warriorlife.com. We'll see you next time. This has been the Warrior Life Podcast. Prepare. Train. Survive.